Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel, the first and second chapters, um, selected verses. You can find them printed in their entirety on page 13 and 14 of your bulletin. Um, before we read those, let's say a prayer. Dear God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you speak to us in many different ways. We thank you for these holy scriptures. We ask you today to open our hearts and minds as we hear these words from your scriptures and as we hear what you have to say to us through Pastor Jim's sermon. We ask you to help us listen, to help us understand, and to help us be transformed by what we hear. We thank you for these gifts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord and said, Oh, deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Skipping to verse 18. Then the woman Hannah went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. For a brief time in 2022, uh, there was a, a new social media app on the rise. Some of you may have heard of it or, or maybe even used it. It was called uh, Be Real. 
And be real was meant to be an antidote to the perceived inauthenticity of other photo sharing apps like Instagram, uh, which some people felt had encouraged users to only share the, the good things that were happening in their lives. Uh, hashtag blessed, hashtag grateful. And Be Real's solution was to prompt users at random times each day uh, to take a photo of themselves and, and their surroundings. And you only had two minutes uh, to take the photo and, and to post it, or you wouldn't be able to see other people's pictures. And so it was meant to uh, encourage you to be real. Share yourself and, and your life as it, as it really is. And I can't say that I've participated, uh, but I'm told uh, that the result was uh, lots of pictures of bedhead and, and bathrooms. And the trend hasn't lasted. Users more than half. After peaking at 20 million users, uh, it's active daily users more than halved between October 2022 and March 2023, uh, down to only 6 million. And one journalist writing about this in The Guardian uh, said that while Be Real claimed to be an escape from the pressures of social media, it actually ended up setting up a, a facade of authenticity that created its own kind of pressure. Uh, they said, Be Real offered a partial solution to the performativity fatigue supposedly plaguing users of high curation apps like Instagram and TikTok. But ultimately, it just added another demand for self-presentation. Only this time, you had to pretend to be authentic once a day, instead of being comfortably inauthentic on an app like Instagram. <laughs> Those are your choices. <laughs> you can pretend to be authentic, or you can be comfortably inauthentic. What if there was a way to be comfortably authentic without hiding or covering up your flaws? That's what we're going to talk about today. I, I thought of Be Real this week uh, because I think readers of the Bible, especially those who have never read it before, are often surprised at how real the stories it, it tells can be. We're beginning this new series today on the life of David, and uh, we're going to see that not even the heroes in the Bible uh, get uh, filters or, or touch-ups to make them look better than they really are. And we'll be talking a lot about David in the coming weeks, uh, and this will certainly be true for him. But today, we're talking about this woman, Hannah, uh, who is the mother of the prophet Samuel, uh, who will be uh, the one who will eventually anoint David as the king of Israel. And the biblical books of, of 1 and 2 Samuel, where we're beginning, are, are dedicated to telling the story of David. But that story begins in, in what might seem like a strange place. It begins not with David, but with Hannah, a marginalized and, and long-suffering woman from an obscure Israelite village. So why does the story begin here with this woman and with her struggle? We have a lot to learn uh, from Hannah's life of faith. And there are three things uh, I want to draw our attention to, especially today. First, 
Hannah's pain, second, Hannah's petition, and third, Hannah's praise. Let's look at these. So beginning with Hannah's pain and uh, her sadness and what's causing it. We're told that Penina, Elkanah's other wife, uh, was in the habit of putting Hannah down uh, because she had no children. In the modern world, to have children or not to have children or how many children to have is a lifestyle choice. But, but things were very different in the ancient world, where a woman's worth, uh, her dignity, uh, her prestige, were totally tied up uh, with her identity as a mother. And the reason for this was very simple. The more children that you had, the more successful your family would be. More children meant more workers for the family farm or more protection for your community in times of war. To be childless in the ancient world was a complete disaster, personally and socially. It meant no one to help you if you got sick, no one to take care of you in your old age. You know, not having children was like having no health insurance, no 401k, no Medicare, no pension. All of these were your children in the ancient world. So the more children you had, the better off you would be. And so you can see why uh, for a woman not to be able to produce any children was, was something to be ashamed about. And this is the burden that Hannah had been carrying for years uh, with Panina rubbing it in at every opportunity. What made this even worse for Hannah is, is the context of how she is reminded of her unfulfilled hopes. It's when uh, she would join her family in going to worship the Lord that she's especially reminded of her barren condition. Elkanah's family is a, is a good church-going family. Every year, they make the pilgrimage up to Shiloh. And part of their worship would have been make an offering for each of his children, and then they would receive a portion of the sacrifice as their meal to eat. And even though he would be, you know, he would give Hannah a double portion as a sign of his love for her, you can see why this would be so hard for her. And here she is, surrounded by everyone giving thanks for the good gifts of children and the worship that only should have encouraged her simply serves as a reminder of her disappointment. Now, there, there's a theme here that's going to come up a number of times in this series. Elkanah and his family are doing everything right. They're worshiping the Lord. They're making their sacrifices. You would think uh, that they could expect God to help them in their difficulties. But the annual cycle of worship and sacrifice only increases Hannah's heartache. God is at work in this story, but in ways that are difficult to understand. In fact, we're told twice in two verses that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. What is God doing? We find something similar in, in many stories of the Bible. In the stories of, of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, we hear of 
uh, women whom, who are barren, whom God meets with miraculous births. God's work often begins not in a context of fruitfulness and flourishing, but in a context of emptiness and need. Uh, we can see, especially see how this is true in the story of Hannah if we connect it with what comes before. In our English Bibles, uh, the book of 1 Samuel comes after the book of Ruth, uh, but in the order of the, the biblical books in the Hebrew Bible, uh, 1 Samuel comes immediately after the book of Judges. And if you know anything about how the book of Judges ends, it's all about the encroaching chaos on the life of the nation of Israel and the failure of the people of God to be anything like what God intends them to be. Now, the very last verse of the book of Judges sums it up. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the context in which we're supposed to read 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, though Hannah is surrounded by the, the forms of religion uh, and sacrifice, really she represents the, the people's real condition in her barrenness and in her need. See this in how the men in the story respond to Hannah. Uh, Elkanah, you know, may be a well-meaning husband, uh, but he's completely unwilling to enter into the grief of his wife, isn't he? Now, basically, also in a, a scene we didn't read uh, this morning from chapter 1, when Hannah is praying at the tabernacle, the priest Eli doesn't recognize that she's praying. He thinks that she's drunk. When the priest doesn't recognize prayer, you know, that's a sign that something deeper is going on in this story. All of, us, all of this shows us that the reality of Hannah's lament and her grief, and that's a reality that I know is shared by many of you, all of us at one time or another. Now, she knows the pain of unfulfilled hopes, of being surrounded by people rejoicing in good gifts uh, that uh, you do not share. She knows what it's like to be unfairly condemned by others and simply the confusion of not understanding what God is doing in your life. Hannah wept and would not eat. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. But there's one thing that Hannah doesn't do. In her struggle, she could have become bitter and angry. You know, she could have lashed out at Penina or Elkanah. Instead, she turns to prayer, and she makes her petition to the Lord. This is uh, our second point, her, her petition. An old monk once said, the man who stores up injuries and resentments and yet fancies that he prays, might as well draw water from a well and pour it into a cask that is full of holes. I love that saying. And Hannah doesn't store up her injuries and resentments. Uh, what this, this old monk is, is saying is you can't really pray, can you, 
if you're focusing on yourself, on your own victimhood, or the ways that you've been wronged or that life has treated you unfairly. The invitation of prayer is always to bring ourselves into God's presence as we really are. Not to get something from him, but to know his presence even in the hard things. And this is what we see in Hannah's petition. Notice for what Hannah prays. Yes, she asks for a son, but she desires something else even more. To know that God remembers her. That's what she says. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The question Hannah is asking is, does God see me? And she says that if, if the Lord answers her prayer and gives to her a son, then she will give him back to the Lord as a servant at the temple. No razor shall touch his head means that he will be set apart as a Nazarite, a dedicated to God's service. This is unexpected. Up to this point, everything has led us to think that Hannah wants a child more than anything so that she can be like the Paninas of the world, you know, and gain the social standing that any woman in an Israelite family would want to have. And there was nothing necessarily wrong with that desire. But out of Hannah's grief and lament has grown an even deeper desire. St. Augustine once said, God, by deferring our hope, stretches our desire. In other words, so often when we think about prayer, uh, we think about it in terms of getting something from God. And that's why we're so often confused about how prayer works. You know, we ask for something that we need, and then we're disappointed when we don't get it. But Hannah shows us that getting something from God is not the point of prayer. God will only ever give what is best for us, either now or in the future. We don't always know what that is, but we're invited to go to him with our needs and then trust him with the results. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it like this, I thank God that he is not prepared to do anything that I may chance to ask him. And I say that as the result of my own past experience. In my past life, I, like all others, have often asked God for things and have asked God to do things, which at that time I wanted very much and which I believed were the very best things for me. But now, standing at this particular juncture in my life and looking back, I say that I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked and that he shut certain doors in my face. At the time, I did not understand but I know now, and I'm grateful to God for it. This means that prayer is an opportunity to bring to God not just our requests, but ourselves. To express to God not just our longings for something created, but our longing for all our other desires. To recognize that this is the desire under all our other desires. 
When you can pray like Hannah, saying, Lord, this is what I want, but I want you more, thy will be done, then you can begin to look at everything in your life differently. Both the things that you have and the things that you don't have. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. What he's saying is that if our ultimate aim is God himself, then we can trust that he will give us what we most need. Earth will get thrown in. What you ultimately need will be there. But if you aim at earth, and that's what you desire more than anything else, then you won't get God because you haven't asked for him. And you'll cling so tightly to the earthly object of your worship that it will slip out of your grasp. But when you can ask God for something and give it up to him at the same time as Hannah does, this is transformative. And this is what she experiences. And in verse 18, it says, Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Notice, this is after she prays, but before she knows what's going to happen. She's no longer sad before Samson is born because of how she has prayed. She feels confident that she's been heard, whatever happens, that God does see her. Isn't this what we need most of all? Especially when we're hurting? Not necessarily to have everything fixed, but to know that we have been heard? And isn't this what we need to be for each other? To be a sign of God's presence? To know that he remembers us? that he has not forgotten. We've talked about Hannah's pain and her petition, and now we come to Hannah's praise. Hannah's final chapter, in, uh, final prayer in chapter two is a prayer of thanksgiving and joy. She does come to the joy. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. In the, Lord. the image of a, of a horn here is of an animal's horn, uh, raised in triumph. You, you have to imagine an antelope or a, or a ram having defeated an enemy and raising up its head in, in triumph. That's what Hannah means when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. The Lord has raised her up to a place of worth, dignity, power, prestige, well-being. These things haven't come from her or from anything created, but from him. And this is why she prays, well, if, if you think about what she praises, she doesn't praise the gift that she has received. She praises the giver. Her focus isn't on her son, but on God and his character. She's thankful, not just for herself personally, but for the insight that she's received into who God is and his actions in the world. This is what brings her exaltation. Through her long journey of waiting and hoping, she has learned to focus her desire on God himself. What will lead to the deepest joy and satisfaction in your life? You know, it's, it's possible 
it's possible to be so focused on what you think you need in order to be happy that you will never be happy even after you get it. Before you get it, you're consumed by the fact that you don't have it. And after you get it, you're consumed by what might happen if you lose it. Hannah shows us a different way by focusing not on the gift, but on the giver. She praises God not for what she can get from him, but for who he is and, and who he has promised to be. If you believe that your value is found in what you have achieved or even in what you have been given, then it's easy to be like Panina, you know, looking down on those who have not done as well as you. But if you know that your value and your worth is based instead on who God is, rather than who you are, this is what leads to the kind of exaltation that we see in Hannah. Because she's not exalting in herself, she's exalting in him. This God can be trusted. He can be trusted with her life. He's worthy of praise, not just because of what he gives, but because of who he is. He is a God who acts on behalf of the weak and the powerless. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He reverses the accepted norms and values of social systems based on power and privilege. In God's rule, it's the barren woman who rejoices and the powerful who are brought low. Those who wait and hope in him receive his care, but it means trusting in his judgment and in his timing. In Hannah's story, we discover one of the major themes of the whole Bible. The God of the Bible promises to bring renewal and restoration to the whole world, but not in the way that we might expect. For not by might shall a man prevail. Through his spirit, God chooses the weak and the despised, and he shows his faithful love to them, even in the hardest circumstances. Over and over again, the Bible teaches us that God identifies with the barren woman, with the poor and the needy, with the hungry and the weak. And this is why, when we come to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, we find that Mary's Magnificat is modeled after Hannah's song. In the incarnation, God comes to us not as a powerful person with great political influence or wealth. He comes as a poor, itinerant Jewish teacher in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah said. The gospel tells us that God knows us as we really are. He doesn't need us to post any photos. He knows what is under the surface, the private struggles, our need for grace. And he remembers us. And if you have any doubt about that today, you only have to look to the cross. On the cross, we see God revealing the height and depth of his love and his willingness to suffer, suffer with and for human beings. When you discover God on the cross, you can bring to him your need and know that he has not abandoned you or this world. He will be faithful to you just as he was faithful to raise Jesus from the dead. And when you know this is true, you can sing the song that we sang earlier in our service today, what e'er my God ordains is right. 
Uh, listen again uh, to verse, shall my stand be What ere my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. And so to him, I leave it all. God will never ask you to walk a road that he has not himself been willing to walk in his son. And he invites you to believe this today. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you today. We aim for heaven. And we entrust to you all of our needs. And we pray that you would uh, give us a vision of yourself, of your character, and of your love. That no matter what our circumstances or our need uh, today or in this coming week, uh, that we would have confidence uh, in your presence with us and in your grace towards us in all things. And so we look to you today and we pray that as we uh, gather around the Lord's table and as we celebrate communion together, that you would meet us even here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.